open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. That's better. Let me encourage you as you consider those songs, obviously one of them, maybe a couple of them are new to you, go into your bulletin. There's in the middle of that, there are those songs there and you can go home, you can look them up, you can practice them. I think most importantly is to look at the words and understand what it's talking about. And there might be some ideas there that are unfamiliar to you. And so it might be good to um, look up some Bible verses and try to find those truths in God's word. And I think that it will be a blessing to your heart if you do that. Daniel chapter 11. Well, we are concluding, coming to a conclusion in Daniel. And I don't know if that makes you sad or happy, but... Um, Makes me a little sad, and, uh, but this will be a series that will conclude the book of Daniel. Really, Daniel 11 is a continuation of Daniel chapter 10, and it really goes into Daniel 12. So Daniel 10 through 12 is really one whole section, and you'll remember from last week that Daniel was praying. He was praying by a river with other people, and then there was a vision after three weeks of praying, what we believe is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, appeared to him and gave him a vision about the future. Of course, he was praying for Israel and he was praying for his people. And God told, through, the, through Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, God told him that the Lord would preserve his people Israel. And so if you look down in chapter 11 and verse 2, really verse 2 through the verse 35 is the first part of the vision. And this vision reveals 375 years into the future from Daniel's day. And then verses 36 through Daniel chapter 12, the end of uh, verse 12, you see a vision that prophesies the end of times, the end of the ages before Christ's Second coming. The purpose of this vision is to reveal to Daniel what will happen to God's people, what will happen to them over the next 375 years, but really what will happen to them at the end of the ages. In fact, look down in verse 14, chapter 10, in verse 14. Here in the vision, he is told the purpose of this vision. So, chapter 10, verse 14 I came to make you understand. What is to happen to your people? Who is your people? It's Israel in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. Now in the New Testament, we understand that we are in the last days. We are in the latter days. But in verse, 20, verse 14, what he's speaking about, he's speaking about the latter days for Israel. And particularly that's talking about that time right before Christ's second coming. When God will refocus his attention on Israel, they will suffer tremendously for three and a half years. Many of them will come to Christ. They'll repent and believe the gospel. And then Christ will come back in the second coming. This is the pattern we see in the book of Daniel. Here he has a vision of here's what's going to happen over the next hundreds of years. And then he zooms forward, fast forwards to the very end and says, and this is what God is going to do with Israel before Christ comes back. You can see this in chapter 2, you can see this in chapter 7, you can see this in chapter 8, chapter 9, and now in chapter 11. These two parts. You have this time in the next couple years for, after Daniel's book is written, and then the end right before 
Christ's second coming. And over and over here in chapter 11 and 12, you see Daniel using these words like the end of days, the latter days, the appointed time. And all this is a reference to a future time, this future time when Christ will refine his people, many will be saved, many of the Jewish people will be saved, and Christ will come back. And so it's still future for us. So again, this is about Israel, and Daniel is learning about what God will do for his people. Now, if you read through chapter 11, and we're not going to read actually through the entire chapter, but if you read through chapter 11, you probably will read through it, and you'll think, there is so much prophecy and so much detail in here. Why in the world would God do this? Right? This is, so Daniel wrote this down, this vision down. And then 375 years took place. And all these prophecies in these first 35 verses took place. And, and you read through it. And it's so much detail. It's amazing. We're going to talk about that in a second. But have you ever wondered, like, why would God put that, all that down? Well, I believe what God wanted Daniel, Israel, and really for us to see is that his word is certain. The word of God is true. It's certain. What God says, God will do. What we find here in the scripture and the word of God is certain. The word certain means having absolutely no doubt, without question, definitely going to happen, infallible, incapable of being reversed, recalled, repealed, and old. You get the point? In, uh, certain means it is definitely going to happen. And what I think he's doing here in these two chapters, on one level, he's saying, listen, God's word is true and it's certain you can trust his word. Now, have you ever wondered, like, is God's word really true? I mean, maybe you've had some doubts. And we've all had that at times where, is this, is this true? Is God's word true? Well, let me tell you this today. If you've ever had those thoughts, or if you have them now, look at Daniel chapter 11. And I am convinced, if you understand Daniel chapter 11, that you can have absolute certainty that God's word is true. God's word is certain. What are a few things that you're certain about? Are you certain that you're here today? Some of you might need to pinch yourself, okay? Are you certain the sun will rise tomorrow? If, okay, yeah, you're pretty sure about that. That's, that's pretty certain. Are you certain you're living in California? If you're paying taxes, you're pretty certain about that, okay? Or you have, if you have to wear a mask somewhere. Okay, we're not going there, sorry. Are you certain about what you uh, read on the internet? How about what you see on TV? Uh, it depends on the source, right? It depends on who's talking, if they're reliable or not. But what about God's word? Are you certain what you're reading in here is absolutely true? Well, the answer to that is yes, because God is the author of it. His Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was the one who authored this by holy men. And so we're going to look today at the certainty of God's word. We're really going to look at three areas in which we can find certainty in God's word. We can find that he's certain in regard to the past, present, and future, in regard to his promises, and then the hope of resurrection. So we're not going to do all this this week. In fact, I'm going to see how far I can get. I usually don't do that, but that's what we're going to do this morning. And we're definitely going to need God to uh, give us illumination this morning, so we need to pray. Would you pray with me and ask God to help you understand the text of Scripture this morning? Let's pray. Father, as we come into your word, 
Your word is true. Jesus said, my word is truth. The word is true. Paul wrote and said, all scripture is breathed out by God. So it's from you. It's true. But Lord, we need help understanding that, to understand your word, but also just certainty in that. And so Lord, will you fill our hearts this morning with certainty in your word? May we trust what you say and live by faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice throughout this text of scripture the claim that God's word is true. Look down in verse one of chapter 10. So chapter 10, verse one, again, this is the beginning really of this whole section. And verse one says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar. So Daniel is the one who is writing this down. He's the one who received the vision. And the word was true. The word true here means something that is firm, something that is certain, that can be trusted. Look down in verse 21, chapter 10, verse 21. He says, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of Truth. Again, this is the same Hebrew word. This is what is certain. This is what is reliable. Look in chapter 11 in verse 2. He says, and now I will show you the truth. Again, what is certain? And think it's the irony of all this, the amazing uh, truth of all this is that Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, is the one communicating this to Daniel. And so the word of God is communicating that the word of God is true. Look down in chapter 12. Look at verse 4. Chapter 12, verse 4. He says to Daniel, but, chapter 12, verse 4, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Now, he's not saying here, hide the book somewhere. To seal the book means to preserve it for a future time. This is similar to what we see in Daniel chapter 6. Remember when Darius is tricked to signing a law according to the Medes and the Persians can never be revoked. When he signed that and said it's illegal to pray to any other god. And if you pray then you're going to be thrown in the lion's den. It was sealed. It was preserved. In other words it couldn't be revoked even if he wanted to personally revoke it. In fact, we see that when the scripture says that the law was one which may not be revoked. That's the idea here. Once the king signed it and he sealed it, it could not be reversed. So that's the idea. He's saying, listen, what you're reading here cannot be reversed. This is going to happen. In fact, if you look down in chapter 12 and you look down in verse 7, you can see this one, this pre-incarnate son of God is hovering over the waters, which is a sign of his deity, by the way. And he says, he swears, he says, I promise, I take an oath that this is what is true. Look at verse 7. He says, I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever. That it would be for a time, that's one year, times, two years, and a time and a half, so three and a half years. And that when the scattering of the power of, his, of the holy people, so that's Israel, comes to an end, all these things would be finished. So at the end of time, at the end, right before Christ comes back in the second coming, he's saying there's going to be a suffering, and I promise it's going to take place for three and a half years. In verse 8, I heard but did not understand. Then I said, O oh Lord, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed 
or they're preserved, they're certain until the time of the end. So what he's saying here is like, God's word is certain. What I'm going to tell you is certain. So all these details we're going to see, I mean, some of you are going to fall asleep and you're going to be like, Pastor Ben, when, when should I wake up? Okay. Well, don't fall asleep, please. But as we're going through this, I want you to remember the reason he's doing all this, he's going through all these details, is because he wants you to be 100% certain that his word is true. And if he said something in the past that came true, if he had a prophecy in the past that came true, then we can trust what he says about the future. In fact, just look at the very end of Daniel, Daniel 12, 13. This is the wrap-up verse for the whole book. He tells him to go your way till the end. And you shall rest. Daniel, you're going to die. And you shall stand. In other words, you'll be resurrected in your, in your allotted place at the end of days. And so he's like, listen, Daniel, live your life now, trusting my words true, and look forward to the end of time, to the end when you are resurrected. So how do we apply this to our life? As I'm going into the application first before we can go to the details. How do we apply this type of prophecy in our life? And again, I want you to come out of this convinced that God's word is true. Because I want you to take God's word and say, I'm going to trust this with my life. I think about our service this morning and everything that happened in our service. And do you recognize how much God's word was a part of our service? Do you know why that is? Why do we have, why do we pray the prayer of praise and we're praying God's word? Why do we pray a prayer petition? Why do we, why do we read God's word? Why do we sing verses that you're like, man, there's a lot of theology in that. Why are we, why are we singing the word of God? Someone asked me the other day, they said, they said, how do you, how do you revive a church? Like how, how does a church like Lighthouse become spiritually revived? And the answer to that, I believe, is that the church is revived through the word of God. So in other words, you, we have these elements in our service because God's word brings life. God's word supports and nourishes our heart. And so I want you to come out of this trusting God's word. So we're going to look at the first point this morning. God's word is certain and true in regard to the past, the present, and the future. Who can you trust? Who can you trust? That's kind of a question you ask today, right? Can you trust your boss? Can you trust your politicians? You know, this bill is worth, you know, it's going to be $3.5 trillion and it won't cost anything. Can you trust that? You know what I mean? And I could go into other examples, but the point is you kind of go, man, who can we trust? Well, we can trust God and his word. So look down in chapter 11, verse number 2. This is where, where we're going to start in our exposition of this text here this morning. In verse 2 through verse 35, this is an amazing text of scripture. I'm going to read it in just a moment. I told you to look at it, but go ahead, you can look at it, but we're not going to read it right now. There, these 34 verses, from verse 2 to verse 35, give 135 specific prophecies that were actually fulfilled in history. So he writes down 135 prophecies and over a period of 375 years, all of those prophecies took place, were actually fulfilled to the letter. It's amazing to think about. In fact, this text contains such specific and detailed prophecies that many critics have accused 
chapter 11 as not being written by Daniel. They say, Daniel could never have written this. How could someone be that specific about the future? It's impossible. And you know what I say? It is impossible with man, but not with God. But here's the problem with that. Not even Christian, you go to some Christian seminaries and they'll teach that. This type of thing that Daniel didn't write this. But here's a couple problems with that. First of all, if Daniel didn't write this and he claimed to, then Daniel is a liar. In other words, if, if this isn't written by Daniel, then you can't believe this. You can't believe any part of Daniel, right? And the problem with that is Jesus actually quoted from Daniel. And Jesus actually said Daniel was a true prophet. So if you can't believe Daniel, you can't believe Jesus. And you know if you can't believe Jesus, well, you can't believe anything else. <laughs> like, and Christianity, at least. So there's, there's no Christianity. So this is a very important text of scripture because it actually supports the credibility of the scripture of the word of God. There's also some other data I could share. I'm not going to, but there's archaeological finds that help support this as being written in the 6th century. And one of those are the Dead Sea Scrolls. But this isn't a history class, although it seems like it's turning into that. So you can talk about that personally, personally with me if you want to. But I, I think really the reason why critics don't like to believe this is actually written by Daniel, although, although all the evidence points to it, is because if this is true, then the word of God is true. And if the word of God is true, then what? Then I have to submit to God's word, right? And so I got to pick this apart and find out how I can show this is wrong. But in the end of the day, that's not true. This, this, the word of God is true. And so therefore, I must submit and obey God and his Word. Now, I might disappoint some people this morning. If you're thinking, man, I would love for you to go through every verse here, Pastor Ben, and tell us what it means, I'm not going to do that. I would say there are some really great study Bibles and some good commentaries, and I actually really would encourage you to get those out and study it, especially if you're like, I just don't know, is God's Word true? If you go through that, you're going to go, you're going to be overwhelmed with the facts about what was fulfilled in history. What makes Daniel 11 so difficult is the amount of prophecy and the details. And so I'm not going to go through all that, but I'm going to do an overview of it. So hopefully that will help you. So actually look in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1 starts in 539. So actually this is, he's speaking about three years previous to when he's getting this vision. So this is history for Daniel right here, verse 1. And then the rest of this is going to be future for Daniel. So verse 1 says, and as for me, in the first year of Darius, the Mede, so this is when the Persians came to power, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So remember, this is this heavenly war going on, and Michael the archangel is defending God's people, and the demons are influencing the kings of Persia. Remember, they're coming against the, the people. Of, remember this from last week? That's what's happening here. And he's saying, listen, I came, I strengthened the, the archangel Michael to defend and protect Israel and fulfill God's will. And then he goes into now this prophecy of the future, what is future for Daniel, what is past for us. Verse two, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now I forgot to do this. Sometimes I forget to do this. Forget to fast forward here through my slides. But this is kind of to help you see all this. So this vision came in 536 BC, Daniel's vision. There's going to be a prophecy of 375 years. Then there's going to be some more years. Then Jesus dies on the cross. 
and then we have the future, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But what I want to show you here is the history of this. Now, you're looking at this, and you're, you might be thinking, because I thought this when I saw it. I thought, oh boy, how am I going to preach this? But what's interesting is these details that we're going to read here are actually found. That's really small font. Can anyone really read that? I don't know. But if you can, maybe some younger people can translate for some older people what it says. But if you look in verse 2, he says there's going to be three more Persian kings. So you have King Cyrus and you have three more kings. There's a fourth king and that's actually King Xerxes. You can see him somewhere up there. Remember who Xerxes married? Esther. In fact, we watched the, um, the sound, sight and sound production of Esther on Friday night as a family. We had a little outdoor movie. We watched that and we're watching this movie. I'm like, hey kids, I'm talking about this guy on Sunday. Daniel prophesied that this guy was going to come in 60 years. He was going to be a king, going to be rich. He was going to come against the, Gre- against the Greeks. Didn't work out so well. But that's what you see at the end of verse 2 there. It's like, he's going to be strong. He's going to have riches. Yeah, that's true. He shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. So... Here he's talking about something that took place. Then, in verse 3, we leap 150 years into the future to the Greek conqueror Alexander the Great. Look at verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority which, with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now again, you might be reading this going, what, what's happening? Well, this is Alexander the Great. He conquers that part of the world. And uh, he dies in Babylon. And his kingdom gets split into four parts. And so that's what you see here. You see in verse 4, he says, not according to his posterity. In other words, he's not going to be having children. His children end up all dying. So they don't get any of the kingdom. And not according to his authority. In other words, he doesn't get to pick who rules over him because he died. Not over him, but over his kingdom because he dies. And so, I mean, isn't it amazing how specific? Now, let's, let's remember, this is years in advance for Daniel, right? There's no way he could have possibly known this was going to happen at all. And in, in detail, he talks about this. And then in verse 5, then the king of the south shall be strong. And there was a, a, fa- a dynasty in the south. The first one was... Uh, Ptolemy the first. Do I have him up here? Let's go next one. I think it's the next one. Oh, it's even smaller font. Good, <laughs> good for you. <laughs> there you go. Maybe yeah, Ptolemy the first, and then it says in verse five, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. And that was the Seleucus the first. So Ptolemy the first, he was down in Africa, in northern Africa, in Egypt. And then you had Ptolemy, he was up in Syria. And guess what was between them? Was Israel. For 150 years, they fought each other. And guess where they fought? Israel. So this is why this is all being talked about, because we're talking about Israel and how these two nations come against Israel. And then look at verse 6. After some years, they shall make an alliance. So these two dynasties, you know, they don't want to fight anymore. And so this girl named Bernice, the daughter of the Ptolemy king, married the Seleucid king. There's probably a movie about this out there somewhere. I don't know. But anyways, and, uh, and again, remember, this is 230 years before Daniel. Um, this is, Daniel wrote this, and this happened 230 years later. So look at verse 6. They made an alliance. The daughter, this Bernice, of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement. That's a marriage. And he actually divorced his wife and married this Bernice. 
That caused the divorced wife to be jealous. But she shall not re, uh, retain the strength of her arm. In other words, she's not going to hold on to the power. And he and his arm shall not endure. In other words, the marriage will end. And she shall be given up. She's going to die. She actually was betrayed by the divorced wife. And um, I'm sorry, she was murdered by the divorced wife. And her attendants, they were killed as well. He who fathered her, they, he was killed as well. He who supported her in those times. So isn't it amazing all the details? I mean, here's details of history. You can go to the history books and read about all this and see the accuracy of all this. And again, over the next, you know, 130-some years, these dynasties fought each other and they're always marching through the Holy Land and hurting people on the way. Skip down to verse 16. I'm not going to go through all those verses in between there because, again, it's talking about all those, those two dynasties coming against each other and, you know, each time they're, they're crossing the Holy Land, Israel and and hurting them. In verse 16, though, you can see one of these Seleucid kings, Antiochus the, the third. So this is now 300 years from Daniel. And verse 16 says, but he who comes, this Antiochus the third, um, shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. He shall stand in the glorious land. What's the glorious land? Israel, with destruction in his hand. And in verse 21, we get to really the most significant of these kings, for Israel, because he did the most destruction, and it was Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, and this is 360 years now from Daniel, and Antiochus only ruled for 11 years, but the reason he's so significant is because he did a lot of destruction and killed a lot of people in Israel, but also in the scripture, he actually is a foreshadowing figure for the Antichrist, and we, we learned about that in uh, Daniel chapter 8, remember that? You can go back and listen to that sermon if you want to. But the point is, is that now we start in verse 21 into Antiochus IV. So this guy is important in history because he actually foreshadows someone who will come before the second coming of Christ, and that is someone we all know as the Antichrist. That's the word, you know, everyone gets, you know, starts looking around and start, starts getting their um, antennas on for that one, trying to figure out who that is. So verse 21, let's talk about Antiochus. Verse 21, in his place shall arise... A contemptible person, it's Antiochus IV Epiphanes, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And that's how he got into that position of authority. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him. He's going to be very powerful and broken. Even the prince of the covenant, that's speaking of the high priest. So he killed the high priest, actually uh, sold the position of the high priest to the next guy. Verse 23, and from the time that the, an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. He shall come, uh, he shall become strong with a small people. And I'm not going to go through these next verses, but verses 24 through 28 describe the, his wars and then how he was humiliated by Rome and Egypt. And look at verse 29. I love how the scripture kind of plops these things in here. Verse 29, at the time appointed... Appointed by whom? Appointed by God. I mean, sometimes, okay, let's take a break here, because sometimes you can go through this kind of stuff and be like, oh, Pastor Ben, I am bored out of my mind, right? I had a history class in college, and I had some great naps in that class. It was early in the morning, and it was head on the desk, and I'd really tried, but it was, it was boring. And you, you can maybe feel like that about this kind of stuff. But here's the thing. We need to remember, when you see words like that, you remember this. God appointed all this. 
Kings come, kings go. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. God appoints all of it. He's sovereign all of it, over all of it. In fact, I was thinking about this this past week. I was thinking, not just of earth history, but of angelic history. You thought about that? The angels have a history. They have a past. They have a present. They have a future. And they don't know their future, right? So he's in, he is sovereign over our history. He's sovereign over their history. He's sovereign over it all. So he has these appointed times. And in the background behind all these wars, here you have these demons influencing these kings to come against God's people. And here you have the prince the archangel of Israel defending God's people. This is amazing to think about. Well, it amazes me. Hopefully, it amazes you as well. Ephesians 1.11, the Bible says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So verse 29, at the appointed time, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For in other words, he's going to go down there. He's going to come against the Romans. Verse 30, for ships of Kitram shall come against him. He shall be afraid and withdraw, shall return back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. So he goes down to Egypt. The Romans say, hey, buddy, surrender. And he goes, oh, I'm scared. He goes back through Israel and he's embarrassed now. So what he's going to do is he's going to take out his rage upon Israel through the people of the Holy Covenant. That's Israel. And verse 30 goes on to say, he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortresses. So he's going to, in the temple, set up Zeus. He's going to sacrifice a pig. He's going to force the Jewish people to eat it. He's going to force them to, to abide by the Greek culture, to speak the Greek language, to worship their gods. And if they don't, then he kills many of them. In fact, verse 32 says, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. In other words, there's going to be some Jews that go say, hey, you know what? My life's worth more than this. So I'll do whatever you say as long as I can live. So he seduces them in that way. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. This is what we know is the Maccabean revolt. They say, no, we're not going to obey your wicked orders. We're going to obey God and from that, they stood up for truth. And then verse 33, And the wise among them shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by the sword, they'll be suffering by the sword, and flame by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. So this Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, he caused many to suffer by the sword, 80,000 Jews were butchered. 40,000 were, 40, were taken as prisoners. Another 40,000 were sold as slaves. He plundered the temple, and some estimate that that was worth approximately $1 billion in modern calculations. Can you imagine that? Now with inflation, it's probably going to be worth more next year, but that's the, that's the number right now. And, I, and, I, and again, again why, why go through all that? I mean, why even, like, as a pastor, preach through this? Well, first of all, because I'm an expositional preacher, so you have to. But also because, actually, it's really important. It's important for you to know that was prophesied, that that was all going to happen, and it actually all happened. And, and it actually should overwhelm you to go, wow, 
God can say all those things to someone like Daniel. He can write them down and they all come true to the letter. That's amazing. I mean, it's akin to one of the pilgrims in the early part of, let's say, the 1600s. You know, they're in Holland and they're like, okay, I'm going to write down some prophecy. We're going to land on Plymouth Rock. George Washington is going to defeat the British military. Then he describes the Civil War, talks about Abraham Lincoln, then describes presidents like Donald Trump and Biden. And if you found a document that described all that, and it was from Holland in the 1600s, you go, that's not true, would you, <laughs> right? But this is true, because this comes from God. And so it's remarkable to consider that God has given us his word, and it is true. If you go to a public university, and frankly, some Christian universities, and if you go to law offices or some people's homes or maybe you, even at your work, you might have people who mock and belittle the word of God. I've had this happen to me. Well, that's, that's just a bunch of fairy tales. There's so many errors in that book, you can't believe it. And, and the first attack is upon the word of God. And so for some of you young kids in here, some of you teenagers, some of you who are in college right now, like, you're going to be in situations like that. And here's what I want you to remember. God's word is certain. And there's reasons that we can trust the word of God. Billy Graham told a story of how he was in seminary. And some of his friends and some of his professors were trying to undermine his view of the scripture. And so he was really confused. You know, all these different critics and all this out there. And so he actually went for a walk. And he got his Bible out. And he set it down. And he prayed. And he says, God... I don't understand everything these critics are saying, but I know this. I know this word is true. From Genesis to Revelation, I believe it's true, and I'm going to trust your word. And God used Billy Graham in a mighty way in our country. And I think that's what God wants us to do, is come to the place where we recognize and confess his word is true. The word of God is certain in regard to the past, the present, and the future. And it's certain in regard to the promises for his people. Look at verse 35. 35 really closes out the section for Antiochus. But it ends with a prophecy about Israel. Verse 35. And some of the wise, speaking of some of the wise Jews who have faith, who stand up, they shall stumble. They're going to suffer. And why are they going to suffer? So that they may be refined, purified, and made white. In other words, they're going to be purified as gold is purified or silver is purified until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So God has promised to preserve his people, Israel, and refine Israel until the end of the age. So how long will this last? What does it say? How long will this refinement, this, this suffering for God's people, Israel, so that he can do a work in their life, how long will it last? So it says, until the time of the end. So what's the time of the end? He says, well, it's an appointed time. What's the appointed time? It's this appointed three and a half years of intense suffering that's going to take place before Jesus comes back in his second coming. So there'll be a seven years and there'll be a, uh, three and a half years of peace and then three and a half years of intense trials that will take place for Israel. That's the appointed time here. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, we're going to talk about more details on this next week. But Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 tells us this. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 tells us this. 
twice in Daniel 12, Daniel 12, 7, Daniel 12, 11, give the specific numbers of three and a half years. So four times in Daniel, we're told there's going to be this intense suffering for Israel for three and a half years. And, and there's a lot of people that look at that and they try to explain it in other ways. But honestly, if you read it in a normal sense, you go, yeah, that's, that's something that is promised for God's people. So there's this promised time that he's going to allow an intense suffering to take place. If you look down in chapter 12, verse 1, you can see it's going to be a suffering like has never happened before. Never happened before for Israel. And they've had some pretty intense times of suffering. But it's interesting, he says here, they're going to face this refining until that time. So is that still happening for Israel? The answer is yes. I, I don't know if you've ever considered how impossible it is that there's a nation called Israel. You ever thought about that? How impossible it is that there's a nation called Israel, and actually those people are in the land of Israel today. Since this prophecy of Daniel, many nations and people have come against to try to wipe out the Jewish people. The Romans killed them by the millions. The Muslims slaughtered them. The Christian crusaders murdered them and plundered them. The Roman church demonized them and blamed them for every type of ill in Europe. The Nazis murdered six million of them. And still today, I mean, all these nations around them, their foreign policy is death to Israel. <laughs> like, that's crazy. I mean, think about that. There's no other country in the world like that. I mean, who's doing that to Thailand, right? Death to Thailand. I mean, Israel, this little country over there, and everyone around them hates them, and not just around them, everyone around the world hates them. I was reading about in May of 2021, 24 countries on the UN Human Rights Council voted that Israel should be investigated for war crimes. Remember that was when missiles were being fired at them and Jewish people were dying? <laughs> it's not funny, but it's like funny to think about. They're going to try Israel for war crimes that actually they were just defending themselves. So not only was it not true that Israel was defending war crimes, but actually the people who voted against Israel were these. There was 24, I'll read three of them. China, Cuba, and Venezuela. Okay, who should, be, who should actually be tried for war crimes? Those, those countries probably. Should Israel? So, I mean, come on, because that makes sense to you. Like, why in the world is Israel under such attack like that? Even more than that, there has never been an ethnic group in the history of the world that has survived with its culture, its language, and in its land for this long. There's no other group. I mean, when, when societies get conquered, right, they end up assimilating to their culture. Or there's intermarriage and remarriage and all that. And so the culture ends up going away. So how is it possible that they were able to survive for this long. Well, the Bible has promises for Israel. This is just one of them. But the Bible promises that God will preserve Israel until the time of the end. Jeremiah 30, 11. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. This is speaking to the Jewish people, to Israel. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you. Has he done that yet? Has that happened? Has he made an end of all those nations? I mean, Israel goes scattered, they gather. They scatter, now they're gathered back again. Has he made, that hasn't happened yet. But of you, I will not make a full end. And some people look at this kind of thing and say, oh, well, you know, let's spiritualize that into something else. 
That's a promise God made. You know the problem with taking that and spiritualizing that? If that promise can be washed away and it could be something else, then why do we trust any other promises in God's word? So God has promised to preserve his people Israel until the second coming of Christ. And God's sovereignty is amazing to consider as he overrules every plan to annihilate Israel. And hey, it might be that Israel doesn't stay in the land. But we do know this. Eventually there will be a day when Christ will gather his people back in Israel. There'll be an, an intense time of suffering and he'll do it for the purpose of refining them so they can come to faith in Christ. And I think the question we have to ask in these kind of things about Israel is why is this happening? Like why does this happen? Well, we learn from this text of scripture that this is a spiritual war. There's no other way to, to explain everything with Israel over the past like three you know, millennia. There's no other way to explain it except that there's a spiritual war against them because God has promises for them. I mean, if you look back in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel 10, 13, Daniel 10, 20. Again, remember Michael the archangel. He's in charge of protecting God's people Israel until the time, in the time of Daniel. He does that there. If you look over in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible says, at that time shall arise Michael. And it says, at that time, what time is he talking about? This is a future time. He's talking about this time of intense persecution to Israel. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Well, who's your people? It's Israel. So again, he's talking about the fact that God's God has these angels that work behind the scenes of life and God is using them to protect his people and fulfill his purposes. Okay, we're not going to have time to get in the next part because we would be here for the next hour. <clears throat> so we're not going to go into verses 36 through 45, but let me just say this, and that is verse 36 through 45 speaks about the Antichrist. He is the king there in verse 36. And, and, it, and it changes to, from Antichicus to, to this king, and that is the future Antichrist. And some people uh, try to figure out, you know, who is this in verse 36 through 45. The problem is, is that we don't actually see this type of person in history. Some try to make it Antichicus and they try to fudge it. So it's like, oh, well, well this could be this and this could be this. The problem is the Bible doesn't fudge, you know. So if you take, if you take the whole... Per first part of the chapter as in the normal sense. If you say, oh yeah, this is, this is the plain reading of scripture. And then you get to verse 36 and after that and you go, oh, well we got to fudge this one so it works. It kind of ruins the whole point of the text of scripture. That is to trust the word of God. So, you, so then you have to consider, okay, so if, if this doesn't fit Antiochus the fourth, because there's some very clear indications here of this, of this king that does not fit him, it is not line up with him, then it has to fit someone else. Well, we don't see anyone else in history. And so our conclusion, therefore, is this Antichrist that Daniel has written about previous in this book. So again, we're not going to go through this this week because I just don't think I have time, although I'm just dying to do it. But, <clears throat> but what you see here in verse 35 and 36, you see this gap. There's a gap. So verse 36, verse 35 is past for us that ended before the time of Christ. Verse 36 through the end of the book of Daniel is future for us. I had someone ask me, they said, they asked if I believe in the gap theory. And I said, well, I don't believe that in Revelation. But the idea is, you know, in these kind of verses, you can have a gap of time. 
And the answer to that is yes, I do believe in that. I believe that there's, in prophecy, you have these gaps that are not evident in the Old Testament, but you get to the New Testament, you're like, oh yeah, that, that's there. You know, take the coming of Christ. In the Old Testament, it seems like he comes to save and to judge at the same time. But we step into the New Testament, and we go, oh, he came to save, and then later on, he's going to come in judgment. And so we recognize that this is, this is how God has worked and how he's spoken in prophecy. In fact, I have this picture up here. You guys know where that is? It's the beautiful backyard of Lighthouse. But behind it is the beautiful scenery of those hills back there. And it's interesting, if you look at those hills, do you know you can climb? There's like a trail that goes up there. You can climb in the far right-hand corner. You can climb up there and you can stand. You can look on it. You can look out over see me. Do you know what's behind you, behind that? It's actually a valley. Did you know that? It's kind of cool. But you, you look at it right here, and it looks like just one like, thing. It goes like that, right? But when you go up there, you look, and you're like, oh, it's actually down. And then it goes up like that. And that, that's kind of what you see in prophecy sometimes. From our perspective and from the perspective of an Old Testament saint, he looks at it, saint, he looks at it and he goes, oh, okay, yeah, Christ is coming someday. But then when you are on the other side of it, you go, oh, okay, so Christ came the first time, and then he's coming again. And so that's what you see here. There's these, these valleys, these gaps that you see sometimes. It's happened a number of times here in the book of Daniel. It happens a number of times in the Old Testament. But we'll look at this next week where we're going to go and look at these verses and how the Antichrist persecutes Israel and, and how God defends his people but let's look at the reason why this is happening. Look at verse 35, and this is how we'll conclude. Why is God allowing this to happen? Verse 35, and some of the wise shall stumble, they'll, they'll suffer, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Look down in chapter 12, verse 10. So that was speaking of going into the time of the Antichrist and him persecuting God's people for three and a half years. And then in verse 10, he again talks about this three and a half years of persecution of Israel. And he says in 12.10, many shall purify themselves. Probably better to read that. Probably better translation is that they are purified. They are purified and made white and refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. In other words, why is God, why would God allow this to happen to his people? Like, why does God allow the fire of affliction in our life? No, the purpose of the pain is to refine. Warren Wiersbe says this, When God puts his own people into the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He knows how long and how much. In other words, God puts his people, Israel, through the fire because he loves them. In fact, look at the result in verse number Verse number one, the end of verse one, look at the result of him putting them through the fire, the fire of affliction, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. What does that mean they're going to be delivered? Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. In other words, they will be saved. There will be people who turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. The point is this, is that sometimes God puts suffering in our life so that we'll turn to him. If you're without Christ in here, you might think to yourself, I don't know why God would allow this pain in my life. Do you know why God might have allowed that pain in your life? So you could recognize that you need him. You say, well, why is that a good thing? Because the, mo the most blessed thing that you could ever have in this life 
is to have a relationship with God. And if you have pain in this world so that you can know God and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and live with him forever, then it's worth it. See, God loves you enough to put pain in your life so you'll turn to him and enjoy him, which is the most enjoyable thing you can enjoy in this world. And so sometimes we look at pain and we go, oh, it's terrible. I don't like to suffer. And no one jumps up and down in suffering. And if you do, you probably should go get checked out by a doctor. Right? Nobody enjoys pain. But what we do is we rejoice in that now for a little while. For this little season, if necessary, we've been distressed by various trials. So why? So that the proof of your faith being much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, God is refining Israel. He will refine them someday, but God is refining his church. And he allows suffering into your life so you can trust him more, so you can know him more, so you can have a sweeter relationship with him. So when Christ is revealed, you shine like the light of God. You shine for the glory of God. Why? Because you're such an amazing person? No, because God refines you to be like his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, God's work in your life of pain sometimes is a work, I should say it's always a work of love. God loves his people. And if you're without Christ, his call for you is to repent, believe the gospel. And brothers and sisters, for us who are in Christ, we need to remember that he's refining our faith so we'll trust his promises. But think about the promises God has for us, his people. And isn't it sometimes when we're in times of comfort, we're enjoying life, we forget about God, we forget about his word, why do we need him? And then we get pain, we go, oh, God, I really need you. What are your promises again? Then we go, oh, wow, Lord, maybe that wasn't such a bad thing in my life. Look what you did in my life. And we rejoice, not in the pain, but we rejoice in the work that God is doing in our life. Let's bow the Lord in prayer. As we come to the conclusion here of our service, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord. Even if you didn't understand everything I was saying, I hope you picked up that last part there. And if, you're, if the Lord is working in your heart, would you respond to him? Maybe just in your seat, just pray to the Lord. Maybe you need to turn around your seat and just get on your knees before God. But please respond to the Lord if he's working in your, your life.